welcome to the Bloomsbury Institute. Um, this is Ben McIntyre. Uh, my name is Michael Fishwick, and I've been Ben's editor, um, except for the first one, uh, which I'm jealous of. Um, Don't be. For many, many no, he won the Somerset Moore Prize. For all of his books, um, and we've had a long and delightful association, I think, Ben, haven't we? Absolutely. A bit like sort of Flanders and Swan, really. Um, <laughs> if you want to bring up the piano, <laughs> yes. I can just. I'm, I'm, I think I'm the Donald Swan in this, in this partnership. Um, anyway, with Bloomsbury, we have published uh, this extraordinary trilogy of uh, spy stories as uh, Agent Zigzag, Operation Mincemeat, and now, of course, Double Cross. Uh, they've all been bestsellers. Operation Mincemeat was number one in hardback and number one in paperback. Um, they've all had wonderful TV documentaries. Well, in fact, uh, not yet Double Cross, but that one's coming up this yes. year, yes. Uh, which made uh, 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 um, which is a rare thing. I mean, to, to, to get TV, as it were, made out of books, uh, and good TV made out of books, um, which has made a TV star of Mr. McIntyre here. Well, um, and uh, Agent Zigzag mm -hmm. was shortlisted for the Costa Biography Awards. So all that uh, gladdens an editor's heart and a, a publisher's heart, and we couldn't be prouder. So what we're going to do now is uh, Ben is going to talk for a quarter of an hour, 20 minutes. Endlessly. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and then when he um, as it <coughs> draws, to, uh, draws slowly to a conclusion, <laughs> um, I've got a number of questions here, all of which have been pre-prepared. Um, <laughs> You'll be glad to hear, uh, which we will go through until we hit around about uh, sort of <coughs> quarter past mark, I'd say, at which point you can, is that right, Claire? At which point you can all, uh, you're free, we'll have a free-for-all and you can all ask questions in a traditional way and we've got a microphone here uh, and you can all, um, and if you have no questions, then I've still got quite a long list so we can all go back <laughs> to that. Um, and uh, Ben, when, once he gets going, is quite difficult to stop. So, um, Ben. Lovely. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Um, we often, I think, look at D-Day as if it was somehow <clears throat> historically inevitable, that it was always going to be a victory. But I think at the time, it was anything but. Uh, it was Allenbrook who said, uh, on the eve of D-Day itself, that it might be the greatest disaster of the war. And it was indeed a very close-run thing. Far closer, I think, than most historians have given it credit for. And Part of its closeness was that it boiled down, in some ways, and this is what the sort of central theme of this latest book is about, not to guns and bombs and bullets, but to personality, to individual character, to a group of extremely dodgy, um, by definition very fickle people. All of them had changed sides once already. And this was the kind of fissile human material on which really the biggest gamble of the war was waged. Um, those of you who are familiar with the book already will, will know that their, their code names were Treasure, Tricycle, Brutus, Bronx and Garbo. And I think the, the code names alone give an idea um, of the, the levels of eccentricity and amateurishness on which this entire operation was based. I mean, I'm often asked whether such an operation would be doable today. Um, and I am quite convinced that nobody would have dared to take this extraordinary punt on these particular individuals. So, June 1944, there are 150,000 Allied troops massed on the south coast of England for the invasion that everybody knows is coming. 
The British obviously know it's coming. The Allies know it's coming. The Germans know it's coming. And the Allies know that the Germans know it's coming. So the key question is, where is it coming? There are really only two points on the north coast of France where the invasion could take place. One is Calais and one is Normandy. Now, the obvious target was Calais. Calais was both closest to the English coast. Uh, it had deep water ports, which would be essential for bringing in battleships. And it was the closest route to Berlin. It was, the f- it was the fastest way to the industrial heartland of Germany, to the Ruhr. So that was the obvious target. And British intelligence had already established that Hitler was himself convinced that the attack would probably come in Calais. So the Allies decided to invade in Normandy uh, for the following reasons, really. One is that they had invented the Mulberry Harbour, the great floating pontoons that could be floated across the Channel and used as deep water ports. Uh, Normandy has wide sloping beaches, which are ideal uh, for landing large numbers of troops, and it was quite lightly defended. So the, the task faced by the framers of Operation Bodyguard, as it was called, it was called Operation Bodyguard because Churchill had famously turned to Stalin at the Tehran conference and said, the truth is so precious, she must be protected by a bodyguard of lies. Uh, To which Stalin, who was not a great man for metaphor, replied, that is what we call uh, military cunning, he said. Um, So Operation Bodyguard had to try and convince Hitler that he was right. And so it was, in a way, it was 180 degrees different from Operation Mincemeat, the very successful deception operation of the year before. Operation Minchmeet had convinced the Germans that the obvious target, Sicily, was not the target. So the point of Operation Bodyguard was to convince the Germans that the obvious target was the target. Um, So you have a whole series of kind of elements that went into trying to create this overarching operation. There were dummy tanks, there were blizzards of fake uh, radio traffic, there was an entire fake army invented in the southeast coast of Britain all of which was intended to indicate that a looming, vast attack was about to take place in Calais, and by definition, anything that took place in Normandy was simply a kind of precursor to that, an amuse-girl before the main course. Um, And at the centre of this were these five extremely unreliable people, um, all of whom had... They they were slightly different from the usual run of double agents picked up by the the 20 Committee, the so-called 20 Committee... Um, which was so-called because uh, 20 in Roman numerals forms a double cross. This was the team. Uh, So secret that practically nobody outside the committee itself even knew of its existence. They were the people who ran the double agents. And most double agents in the Second World War were unwilling or at least intercepted spies. Uh, There were something like 350 were landed in Britain in the course of the war. These were German spies who came by plane, by parachute, by boat, some rowed ashore, and they were all the early spies, the invasion spies, as they were called, were almost uniformly hopeless. Um, Most of them, I mean, many of them spoke no English at all, Um, and it was part of a sort of German campaign to sort of saturation bomb Britain uh, with agents in the hope that some of them would stick, and most of them were intercepted because the Bletchley Park intercepts allowed British intelligence to work out where and when they would be coming. But the five spies I write about in Double Cross are all different because in each case they volunteered themselves to work uh, for the Allied cause and so therefore they, they belong to a quite different category. It doesn't make them more reliable but I suspect it does in some ways make them more interesting than spies who are operating either under duress 
or because they feel they have no choice between that and, and trial and probable execution. So it gives them a kind of psychological pattern that I think is different from the others. Uh, and before we I mean, go any further, I thought I'd just say a little bit about the nature of the material that has produced these books, because I was thinking about this today. When you read something written by an official that nobody, that the official himself never expects to be public, it has a quite different quality from almost any other form of official documentation. So when you read uh, that Jeremy Hunt um, is having complicated communications through back channels with the Murdoch team, and it is written in such a way that you realise it is never meant to be read by anybody else. It has a completely different quality. Now, this is true of the MI files, MI5 files on which most of this material is based. The MI5 files were written by and about and for people who assumed they would never be read. And so they have a quality of, well, I think that probably the, the word is truthfulness, that most government files do not have. Most people who write government reports shade them in some way. They expect them to be public at some point, and so they, they try and make themselves look good or they try to make others look good. The wonderful thing about the MI5 files is that they are honest in a way that is quite unique. Uh, they tell jokes. They, um, they insult each other. They swear throughout. They are, you know, in some cases, extraordinarily racist and, and misogynist because they assume it's never going to be read. So you are getting in these MI5 files the real deal, and it allows you to tell the story in a, with an accuracy that is, I think, almost unique because intelligence files are not intended to be read by anybody else. And, and one of the other amusing aspects of it is that although my five spies, each of them, signed the Official Secrets Act, they all blithely broke it after the war, and two of them wrote memoirs, um, also written in the expectation that the real story would never come out. Um, so these memoirs are, in some cases, wildly fictional. Um, I mean, Popov, for example, wrote something that is purported to be uh, his memoir, but is, in fact, a novel, really. I mean, it is entirely based on, uh, on Ian Fleming, and it contains all sorts of bits of Bondiana that really never happened at all. So one of the pleasures is trying to fill it out, uh, the reality, using the real files, from what others, assuming the files would never be released, have said about themselves. So I think, in a way, if, if the books have a kind of a granular quality, it's, it's because the people involved never thought the truth would come out. So that's a complicated way of sort of introducing this whole notion of where this stuff comes from. Michael. Well, that's, uh, thank you. Thank you, Ben. I mean, I, yeah, that's... Um, um, what, what, is, what is... Why is... Uh, you're very good on this. Why is there this closeness between... You make the point that so many people involved in the uh, secret services went out and... Um, uh, uh, sort of wrote novels and so on. What, what, and, and indeed, at that time, they all became, a lot of them became novelists in Fleming and Bibbon, Marston, mm. and all sorts. What, what is the relationship between the sort of fiction and the kind of the, the truth itself? What is, what is that? Well, about? intelligence is, in a way, a form of fiction, I often think. I mean, particularly deceptive intelligence like this. I mean, you are creating, as novelists would, a parallel world yeah. and then trying to lure others into it. Um, and, and the better and more convincing you can make that parallel world the more effectively the fiction will run. I mean, it is extraordinary, I think, that the writers of the best spy fiction, and indeed almost every writer of spy fiction, has themselves been involved in intelligence at some point. Graham Greene, Somerset Maugham, um, Ian Fleming, John le Carre, they, they all have done it. And there is, I think, a sort of direct link. And also, 
particularly for these five spies that I've written about in the last book, they were all, to some extent, fantasists. They had all created an image of who they were and then, as it were, lured the world towards it. Yeah. But interestingly, it is also true, I think, of the spy operators, the, 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 the intelligence officers who were running these people, on both sides, had a kind of quality of kind of imagination and make-believe that sort of seemed to come with the job. And interestingly, I did a sort of survey at one point of the intelligence officers who were operating in Madrid in 1944, and there were eight of them. Two were established novelists, uh, one was a failed novelist, two were poets, and one wrote plays. And so they were all, to some extent, involved in a kind of fictional world. And I think that's some... There is a, there is a sort of extraordinary sort of nexus, I think, between the two. I, I once made this point to Stella Remington. I said, you know, do you, you know, do you think that you know, people who are involved in intelligence automatically go on to become novelists? And she gave me a tremendously sort of old-fashioned look and said, you know, absolutely nonsense, no idea. Ended up judging the Booker Prize. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, and, and we publish our novels. You publish our novels. So you know, it's pretty clear that even if they deny it, they are, absolutely. They are fairly frustrated yeah. novelists. I think maybe because they're forced to keep quiet for so long, they need to kind of <laughs> need speak to out at some out, point. Yeah. So, what, so with um, Double Cross... Why were the Germans so easily taken in? Why were they so hopeless? I mean, um, why, you know, they didn't seem to be very good at the spying game. And uh, why they didn't even, they did, did they have their own double-cross mechanism? Well, funnily enough, they, actually, although they were, on the whole, pretty hopeless, they did pull off an extraordinary double-cross system of their own right at the beginning of the war. It's very rarely mentioned, but uh, there was something called the Venlo incident, which, which occurred right at the beginning of the war, when... Um, uh, two intelligence officers were successfully lured to the Dutch border in the belief that they were negotiating with um, senior German army officers who were about to defect, which was in fact a completely made-up operation by, by Walter Schellenberg, who went on to run German intelligence. And it was highly successful. They captured the two um, yeah. intelligence officers and, it is said, managed to unravel a, a great deal of the Western system. But... That said, the Adwehr, the German military intelligence, was a slightly peculiar animal within German, the German military machine. It was staffed largely by old-fashioned militarist officers, um, many of whom were out of sympathy with the regime. In fact, I think you could say probably a majority of Adwehr officers had no love of, 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 of fascism. So that's one element. Um, the other one is that it, it was organised in a completely different way. Each German spy master was responsible for his own agents, whereas in the British system, the responsibility went all the way up and all the way down. Uh, you know, everybody was responsible right down through the pyramid, which meant that sort of German intelligence officers had a vested interest in their agents doing well, and they were very unlikely. In fact, I could find no example of a German intelligence officer ever saying. I'm a bit worried about um, this agent because I think they may be doubling because that was the quickest way to end up on the Eastern Front. So even when they knew they were bent, I mean, and, and the best example of this is, is Eddie Chapman. I mean, it, it is quite clear that Eddie Chapman's case officer knew perfectly well that Eddie Chapman was on the other side. Um, but it was definitely not in his interest to do anything about it. And he's a good example because he was also out, completely out of sympathy with the regime. So he had a kind of both a moral and a kind of, uh, as it were, a professional interest in seeing Chapman succeed. And the other element is that they were also fantastically corrupt. 
um, they were making a lot of money, a lot of these Abwehr officers. And, and the case of Popov is a very good one. I mean, Ludovico von Karstoff, who was Popov's case officer, that's Agent Tricycle in Lisbon, bought a wonderful seaside property and two extremely expensive cars on the basis of what he'd managed to skim off from Popov's payments from Berlin. I mean, he had absolutely no interest in stopping this operation because he was making an extremely good living out of it until he was rumbled and sent to the Eastern Front. So, um, I mean, the whole way that, the, that this system was financed is, a, is, is itself a, an extraordinary story, really, because uh, the Germans needed to get money to their agents in Britain, the agents they thought they had in Britain, although all the agents they had in Britain were actually controlled by the Allies. But they needed to get money to them uh, because they worked on the assumption that if you don't pay an agent, that agent is likely to be being paid by someone else and is therefore unreliable. And it was very difficult to get money into Britain uh, because, for obvious security reasons, and they tried parachuting it in and they, used to, they did sort of drops of bundles of money on the top of double-decker buses. In, but it, they couldn't get enough in, so the British decided it would be much easier to help them. They should, they should actually help them get the money in. So they, they cooked up this wonderful system whereby they effectively invented a kind of a, a theatrical agent who actually operated not far from here, who they pretended was trying to get his money out of Britain. Uh, and they pretended that he was, would, had agreed to disperse money to these various agents in Britain, and he would then be uh, recompensed for this by having money put into a bank account in New York, uh, which is indeed what happened. It was called, brilliantly, Operation Midas. And it meant that in the end they gathered £80,000 was transferred into this New York bank account, which of course went immediately into MI5's coffers, which made the entire double-cross system self-financing. Uh, they actually ended up with a small profit, um, with which they threw a party uh, right at the end of the war. And it was just a brilliant example of how this kind of advert not only kind of went along with it, but was actually paying for the whole thing. <laughs> Um, Wonderful. So which of these extraordinary spies is your favourite? Well, I have a peculiar fondness for Agent Bronx, um, who was a bisexual Peruvian playgirl and the heiress to a wealthy guano magnate uh, by the unimprovable name of Elvira Concepcion Josefina de la Fuente Chaudois. Um, she had been recruited by MI6, in fact. She, um, she was a gambler and a, and a tremendous good-time girl. There are pictures of her in the book, and she has a wonderful sort of 1930s haircut that kind of comes up in a great sort of question mark at the top. And she, um, she'd run out of money in, 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 in 1941 and was recruited by a particularly sort of sinister MI6 uh, officer called Claude Dancy, um, who recruited her as a coat trailer, which is sort of... Um, spy jargon for somebody who goes out to try and get picked up by the opposition in the expectation that if they are then picked up by the opposition, you can then use them as a double agent. And she was sent off to, um, to the south of France where she was duly uh, recruited in, a, in a, a Cannes casino by a Gestapo intelligence officer, in fact. At least that's what we think he was. It's quite hard to work out who he was, in fact. But uh, she was recruited and sent back to Britain and began sending messages in secret ink uh, written between the lines of what looked like completely innocuous letters to family and friends in Lisbon, reporting high-level conversations from the gaming tables and high-society salons of London, reporting conversations with people that she had never, ha uh, never had, with people that she had never met, um, including sort of relatives of Churchill and Beaverbrook and Lord Kelmsley and all sorts of high-level high folk, 
which the Germans utterly believed. Um, and, and they assumed that she was sort of completely pinned into high society. Um, and she played a very, very an important and completely unacknowledged part in the D-Day landing. She was responsible for a, a particular element of bod Operation Bodyguard, which was called Operation Copperhead, which was uh, trying to convince the Germans that not only was this looming landing coming in Calais, but there was a secondary front about to open up in Bordeaux. There were two panzer divisions down in Bordeaux that, that, that the Allies were very keen to keep down there and prevent them from moving up to the Normandy bridgehead. And she almost single-handedly um, carried off Operation Copperhead, which was a partial success. She sent uh, a telegram. They, she'd worked out what they call a plain code telegram with her, uh, plain code deal with her, with her German spymaster, which was that if she spent, sent a telegram um, to her bank in Lisbon saying, j'ai besoin de 50 livres pour la dentiste, I need, I need 50 pounds for the dentist, this was a clear indication that there was a looming attack taking place, about to take place in Bordeaux. And we know that this was picked up. Um, and in fact, it is thought that an entire panzer division was kept behind in order to, to sort of meet the looming threat in Bordeaux no. that never happened. And that was very important. Well, it certainly played a critical part. I mean, the, the calculation was that every hour that the massed forces elsewhere in France could be prevented from moving towards the Normandy bridgehead, that that would have a profound and important effect on the... On the on, on the outcome, and uh, there's, there's little doubt that certainly the, the, the Operation Fortitude element of it, which was the, the Calais element, worked a treat. I mean, Eisenhower was in absolutely no doubt that without it, um, the troops, I mean, the 15th Army, the mighty German 15th Army in, in Calais, if that had moved even two weeks before it did finally start to move, it would have made perhaps the critical mm. difference. Mm. Um, so, so, in a way, what I love is the idea of these sort of this sort of dodgy Peruvian playgirl actually sort of changing the course of history. Um, so was she the most important, do you think, of her? No, she wasn't. I mean, she wasn't. She was, she, was, she was among the most active, which is why I love her, but probably the most important was, was Agent Garbo, who was the... Um, well, he was even more bizarre in some ways. He was a sort of failed Spanish chicken farmer who had um, volunteered several times to work for British intelligence and kept being turned down. He was a sort of... He, he, was, he, he would turn up in Madrid and, and explain that he was desperate to spy for Britain, and they kept sending him away. So he went freelance. Um, that was a sensible decision, really. And he, um, he, he finally persuaded the Germans to send him off to Britain, but he only got as far as Lisbon. Uh, he didn't have enough money to get to Britain, and he wouldn't have been able to get to Britain without British help. And from Lisbon, he began to make up um, reports of what he claimed to be seeing in Britain. Uh, and since he'd never been to Britain and had no idea what Britain was like, he had to rely on information from the public library and various other books that he could get. And he, and he, and he was believed, although he made the most extraordinary mistakes. I mean, he, he, in one of his reports, he said, um, I'm in Glasgow at the moment, and it's, uh, Glaswegians will do anything for a litre of wine. Actually, Glaswegians probably would do anything <laughs> for, a litre, for a litre of wine, but it's quite hard to get hold of a litre of wine in, in the Glasgow docks. Yeah. But in spite of all this, it was, sort of, it was believed by the Germans, absolutely. And they, um, but for Britain, it posed a problem because uh, Bletchley Park began to pick up these messages from what appeared to be a kind of loose agent operating in Britain who was sending these bizarre messages describing kind of amphibious landings in Lake Windermere and, and all sorts of things that could never possibly have happened. And they worked out that this must be Pujol, and they brought him over to Britain and installed him uh, finally in a, in a sort of semi-detached house in Hendon. 
um, which I'm trying to get a plaque for. I'd like all your help with this. <laughs> this, is the, this is the semi-detached house in Hendon that won the war. So if, <laughs> when I've launched this, I'd like you all to sign up for it. But it um, and he began to create... He had a wild imagination. He began to create a vast network of subsidiary spies. Um, there were 27 of them in the end, and they were all completely fictional. Um, they included a, a sort of disgruntled American NCO and a waitress and... Um, people from within the Ministry of Information. But the, but, the, but, the, but the core of them, which I particularly love, was something that he invented called the Welsh Aryan Brotherhood. Um, the Germans, for reasons that I've never been able to work out, uh, were utterly convinced that the valleys were teeming with uh, enraged sort of proto-Welsh fascists <laughs> who were simply awaiting the moment, that the, the kind of key from Berlin to rise up and kind of uh, take over the country. Of course, no such things existed, but, but um, Garbo invented this wonderful team of... There were six of members of the Welsh Aryan Brotherhood and a sister called Teresa. Uh, they were all completely invented, but, um, but, the, but their, their information was swallowed whole. And in fact, many of the reports that Garbo was sending were actually being relayed verbatim on the German intelligence network. They didn't even bother to edit them. They just sent them out wholesale, and they were very long. I mean, as, as, as Garbo's case officer said, it actually, if the Germans had bothered to go through all of this material in one go, they would have realised that no single human being could have produced quite this vast scree of information. It just wasn't physically or humanly possible. But they never got to that stage. Um, so what was... I mean, you were talking about... I mean, what, was the, what was the most surprising thing that you just... In all your researches about all, all this? I mean, I know what I think is the most... Yes, now the pigeon work is wonderfully bonkers, really. I mean, it's why I think you would never be able to do this today, because they were, they were very much given their head. They were told, you know, off you go, find any way to do this. And Operation Mitsubishi was a very good example. But, but in a way, this was even more extraordinary, because the stakes were so extraordinarily high. And um, the obsession with pigeons was a particularly sort of fecund area, really. There was a particularly secret part of MI5 called Section B3C, uh, which comprised one person whose name was uh, Flight Lieutenant Richard Melville Walker, one of the great unsung heroes of the Second World War, who was in charge of the pigeon section. Uh, to say that Walker was a pigeon fancier doesn't quite do justice to the depths of his passion. He, um, he adored pigeons. He thought pigeons were the critical element, the missing element in the whole strategic picture. And he believed passionately that Britain had sort of fallen behind in the pigeon race. Uh, pigeons are actually a very good way of passing secret information. They're, you know, they're virtually impossible to intercept. Uh, and they fly in a straight line and they go home. So they are actually a useful thing. But Walker had convinced himself that after a sort of international pigeon racing uh, competition in 1938, that the Germans had indeed bought over a lot of competitor pigeons for this race. He was convinced that, that Britain was filled with sleeper pigeons um, <laughs> that had been left behind uh, for German spies to pick up, attach their messages to, and then send them across the channel, um, where they'd be picked up and they'd fly back to Germany. They could fly back to Germany. They have a range of 700 miles. Um, and Walker became utterly obsessed by the idea that the, the country was filled with these things. Uh, so he set up a pigeon interception unit on, on, on the Silly Isles. And the point about a homing pigeon is that it, it flies in a straight line, particularly across water. Uh, so with six peregrine falcons on the Silly Isles, they would wait until they saw a pigeon flying in a, in a direct line. And then they'd release the peregrine falcons and bring the wretched thing down. And it was highly successful. They, 
they managed to bring down 23 pigeons in all, all of which turned out to be British. Um, so it was, it was a classic case of sort of bird-on-bird friendly fire that completely backfired. But undaunting, he was a completely unstoppable walker. I mean, he thought this was a terrific success, really, that they'd managed to do it. And he then hit on... Uh, his part in the D-Day deception was that he... He had worked out... Uh, Himmler was a great pigeon fancier and head of the, the uh, German Pigeon Federation. And um, he believed that... He, he decided that if he could infiltrate pigeons that looked like German pigeons into occupied France... Let me... Stay with me here, because this is slightly complicated. <laughs> he, he decided that if he could... Dr- slightly tired pigeons don't go home. They tend to go to the nearest loft and sort of settle in. And he worked out that if he could disguise British pigeons as German pigeons by giving them special wing markings and, and rings and so on, and if he dropped them in the right part of occupied France, they would end up in German lofts. The Germans would then realise, eventually, that their pigeon lofts had been infiltrated by double-agent pigeons and would then take the only sensible precaution, which would be to kill them all. He amazingly managed to persuade the authorities to allow him to do this, and he dropped 350 slightly knackered German <laughs> Pigeons disguised as German pigeons into, <laughs> into occupied France, all of which disappeared. They all went completely AWOL and, as far as we know, spent the rest of their lives living in blameless lives in France. Um, because, of course, the Germans, while well, they did end up in German pigeon lost, the Germans couldn't believe that you could disguise a British, uh, uh, let alone that anyone would bother um, to, dis- to disguise British pigeons as German pigeons. So it was one of the great, really, I think, heroic failures of the Second World War. <laughs> um, <laughs> So what? Um, what do you think? I mean, they are so strange and exotic. All these these characters, and they're sort of um, they're ingenious, and they're sort of bordering insane. But what um, what makes the perfect spy? Do you think? I don't know. I've never been quite certain whether this particular area of of, of work attracts very oddball people, or whether it actually creates very oddball people. Whether whether when you've been in it for a little while, and the double mirrors get to you, you do go slightly slightly mad. Um, I mean, a good example of that, I think, is that uh, completely unbeknown to, to section B1A, which was the, the, the section in, in running double agents, everything they were doing was being consistently betrayed from within. That a senior MI5 officer was reporting everything back to Moscow. Anthony Blunt was in charge of drawing up monthly reports on what Section B1A was doing. He, he drew up a short report which went to Churchill and a much longer report which went to the NKVD in Moscow. Uh, so, bizarrely, Stalin knew far more about uh, the double-cross system than Churchill did. But yeah. the wrinkle in all... I mean, the danger in this is that had the NKVD been penetrated by German intelligence, and there, is, there are hints that it may have been, all of this information would be feeding back to Berlin. Now, what would be the consequences of this? Well, they're not quite what you might expect them to be, because, in fact, this vast amount of material... I mean, I can't remember exactly what number it it is, but I think Blunt, in the end, during the course of the war, passed over more than 1,700 individual documents. This vast flood of information arriving in Moscow was so good that they didn't believe it. Nadia Modrinskaya, who was head of the NKVD section for analysing British intelligence, in a brilliant kind of bit of double-think, decided that because all the information coming from Blunt and Philby and McLean and the others was 
corroborative, that it was all meeting up with each other, they themselves must be the victims of a double-cross operation, that all of this had to be some attempt to bamboozle them. So she therefore assumed that instead of uh, there actually being a plot to try and convince the Germans that we were landing in Calais and not Normandy, that that must be a double bluff. So therefore, we must be planning to land in Calais. So the effect, had the NKVD been penetrated, follow me here, is that in fact it would have reinforced the deception. It would have reinforced the deception because the the German spy within the NKVD would have received the intelligence that actually this is a double bluff. So you have these double mirrors that endlessly replicate each other. So it's no wonder they all went slightly mad, I think. No, I get that. I found this when I was was working (laughs) on the book. I just can't quite follow the labyrinth. Um, so, where are we now? Um, yes, a little bit. So, just, I mean, we're, the, the newspapers are full of stories about somebody in this world being found in a bag in a bath. Ooh, I mean, God, yes. does, this, is this, does this kind of espionage, would that exist in the modern world, do you think? I mean, I mean, I mean that story is almost like something out of one of your books, quite frankly. But, I mean, it's sort of... Yes. I mean, it's sort of I... I'm not sure. I don't really know the answer to that because I'm not sort of privy to to how they do it now. But it does seem to me that these stories have a kind of imaginative grip that is quite unique. And I think it is is partly because they attract these strange people. It's partly because intelligence is a work of the imagination. I mean, it's it's all about trying to sort of see your way into the mind of, of your opponent. And there are tremendous opportunities for betrayal within them. So I think it's a sort of combination of those things. Would they be able to do this today? I, I strongly doubt it, although it is said, and I have no way of uh, corroborating this, but it is said that a similar double-cross operation was launched during the first Gulf War, that there was a deliberate attempt to try and persuade Saddam that, in fact, a, a, the, an attack was not coming from Kuwait but was actually coming from Turkey at the other end, and that it was partially successful. <coughs> so, whether, I mean, the one great advantage that the British had in 1944 which would never be repeated again, I suspect, and certainly hadn't happened before, was the Bletchley Park intercepts. I mean, the fact that that Britain was reading the private mail of senior Abwehr officers and they could follow in real time whether the deception was working was surely the critical factor because I don't think they would have launched something like this had they not been able to check whether it was working at the time. And interestingly enough, they only used agents... Who, who were wireless agents and therefore whose information was going to be relayed by wireless that they could pick up. They had an agent called Tate who was very good, but he was operated out of Hamburg and Hamburg had a landline link with Berlin, which meant that, that we could not work out whether it was working with Tate because we couldn't intercept what was happening on the landline and they scrubbed him. They just decided not to use him because it was too dangerous. So I think, I think in a way... Because the only reason we can tell this story as we can is because you can go back to the Bletchley Park intercepts and you can follow exactly what the Germans thought was happening in really from day to day. And I think that, that has never been replicated unless there is some astonishing cyber uh, espionage breakthrough that I certainly don't know about. We've ne- we haven't got to the stage where we can actually tell what the other side is doing from day to day. And I think that's the difference in a way. Yeah. So what, I mean, we're all obsessed, we all seem to be obsessed with, with, with spies, um, and we love our fiction about spies. Um, why do you think we are obsessed with this? Why are you obsessed with it? Why are you, because um, you wrote, I mean, your, uh, one of your early books was um, 
uh, the Napoleon of Crime about Adam Worth, which is sort of a bit like the Sting. It was kind mm. of, uh, he was a scallywag. So, mm. I mean, do you, is it, do you like sort of? Is that I think what it probably says you? something terrible about me, really. I, uh, I'm, sort of, I'm trying to work towards. Yeah, that. I sort of. I think I, <laughs> I think I prefer slightly dodgy people. I mean, I think we inherited from the Second World War a view of that conflict that was really painted in black and white. Uh, because of it seems it seems a morally uncomplicated war. You were either on the right yeah. side or the wrong yeah. side. You were yeah. either black or white. You were either a yes. hero or a yeah. villain. Yeah. Well, of course, human beings don't actually behave that way. That's that's that is not an accurate <coughs> reflection of, of of humanity. And actually, what I've loved about these stories, and indeed I loved about Adam Worth, is that there were some rather extraordinarily good people on the wrong side, and there were some really terrible people on the right side. Mm. And I'm fascinated by people who do the right thing for the wrong reason and the wrong thing for the right reason. And, and the central character in this story is, again, a, a character that nobody's ever really heard of, who was called Johnny Jebson, who, yep. was a, who was a sort of, in many ways, a pretty reprehensible human being. I mean, he was, a, he was a dodgy businessman, he was a forger, he was a serial philanderer, he was a great friend of P.G. Woodhouse, which shouldn't be held against him, but he, um, but he, he ran a very complicated forgery scam through, through Switzerland, which he used to bankroll P.G. Woodhouse. But he became uh, actually an MI6 agent. He was recruited by, by six and became agent artist and produced this extraordinary wealth of really high-grade uh, material in, in late 1943 and early 1944, which was too good. I mean, it was just too good because he began to reveal the identities and the locations and the methods of payment of all the German spies who were operating in Britain. And when these weren't picked up, when they continued to send their information as they had before, he made the only logical deduction, which was that they must be double agents, which, of course, they all were. So Jebson was then privy to the great D-Day secret. He knew that all this flood of information that was being passed over was deliberately deceptive. And then he was captured, um, he was uh, kidnapped in, in Lisbon, he was taken to Berlin, and he was horribly tortured. But he never revealed what he knew. Now, uh, we don't know why, but we can certainly speculate. But it is certainly clear that he, that he held firm. And he's one of those fascinating figures, I think, because he's a very ordinary, flawed man. Um, he couldn't resist worldly temptation. But he did manage to resist the worst that the Gestapo could throw at him. And I, I find that very fascinating, somebody who was kind of, in a way, a sort of, a, 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 a sort of not a good man, but he found a form of goodness that only war sometimes reveals. And I think that, that's, that's kind of the central element that I'm always looking for in these stories. They're not cardboard heroes who, who go and win the war. They're, none of these people are straightforward, and that applies as much to the people who ran the agents as the agents themselves. Um. So there's only, I've only got, I think we're going to, we can throw it open in a minute. The one last, well, yeah, one last question for me. If there's one file that you could be handed by your secret sources, what would it be? By the way, the secret sources don't hand me the files. I, I, would, I didn't say they I did. Would I, would love it if they did. I would love it if they did. It sadly doesn't quite work that way. I'd like to pretend that it does, but it really doesn't quite. Although, for a secretive organisation, MI5 is extraordinarily sort of open to suggestion on what they might like to release. You know, they're kind of, they're quite good on that front. But um, what file would I love to get? Uh, the file that I would love to get my hands on, which we will never get, I think, is the, is the real story of the, uh, the winding up of the Philby, McLean, Burgess, Blunt ring. Yeah. Because it is no <coughs> accident 
and I don't wish to spare anyone's blushes here, but um, it is no accident that the official history of, of MI6 ends when it does, yes. because <laughs> we, we don't really, you know, published by Bloomsbury, and a wonderful book it is too, <laughs> but it stops with a very major full stop when yes, it, it stops, because thereafter it becomes far too interesting to publish. Yes. <laughs> um, so that, to be honest, is the file that I would give my eye teeth to get my hands yes, on, yes, and I strongly yes, yes. doubt I ever will. No, but who no. knows? I mean, I think... There has been a sea change in official secrecy in this country. I mean, we were, for both good and evil, really obsessed by secrecy during the Second World War. I mean, I'm always rather touched by talking to former Bletchley Park people who, even though they've long been released from their vow of secrecy, still find it hard to talk about yes. this stuff. They don't, you know, and I think we've forgotten <coughs> that actually secrecy has huge benefits. I mean, that secret was the best-kept secret of all time. Yeah. 2,000 people knew it, and none of them blabbed. And I think our culture today, this is going to sound very sort of Daily Telegraph, but our culture today, you know, you, it, 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 the emphasis is on not keeping secrets. People who keep secrets are thought to be, by definition, a little peculiar. You're supposed to blurt. You're not supposed to yeah, kind right. of keep it all in. And I think there is a great advantage to it. But That's Put it on Facebook. Put it on Facebook. Let it all hang out, which is fine. But I think there is, there's something about secrecy that is very honourable and, and, and mm. sort of perhaps that's something that we've slightly lost in our yeah, culture. That's a very, very, very good point. Um. And on that note, I suspect we are at sort of 20 past. I imagine we can do sort of 10 minutes. So if, 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 um, if should we throw it open? I mean, any um, questions? Anyone, if anyone's got any questions. Well, I answered them all. Marvellous. Um, are, they, are they actually attractive people? Because you, you call attention to this element of fantasy mm. and that might then make them narcissists. I mean, they are creating the world in their own image. And so... Are they attractive? It's a very good question. They are, they are like all human beings, they come from a variety of motives. It's almost impossible to pin down why this group of people, what they have in common. Because they, they, they operate from a whole variety of different reasons. Some greed, some loyalty, some ideology, some adventure. I mean, some are simply motivated by this raw kind of desire to do something that is exciting and dangerous. And I think that makes them attractive in a kind of slightly skewed way anyway. I mean, I think that the fact that they, they don't operate from simple motives of sort of patriotism and honour, although some of them have those elements. Um, attractive, not attractive in a conventional sense, I don't think. They're not, they're not sort of... They're not people that are easy to love. I mean, even at the end of this book, it's, uh, I found myself thinking, even with the most straightforward of them, would you, would you have enjoyed their company? I, I think you'd have enjoyed their company, but I think at the end of the evening you'd have thought, my God, there's my wallet gone. I don't think so, and I don't think they were people on the whole who did intimacy. I mean, it's, I think it is interesting that they were... There is a link, I think, between sort of the philandering that went on I mean, they were faithless people in, in some ways. And I think they were... They, none of them had stable relationships. None of them had long-running marriages. I mean, Popoff, for example, who was just an extraordinary sort of serial womanizer, had something like six girlfriends going at, at one time, one of whom was sort of laid on by MI5. I mean, they were kind of... You know, he was absolutely unstoppable. And I think that fickleness, that sort of unwillingness to be tied down to anything, is an element in, in the kind of mental makeup that you have here. And, and fascinatingly, sort of after the war, they all went in very different directions. It would be very hard to say, oh, you know, the life of a spy, once it's all over, they become this. I mean, the man who ran the whole thing, Tar Robertson, became a, chick, uh, became a sheep farmer. Um, uh, Brutus, who, who was the Polish patriot at the beginning, he became a printer not far from here. 
Um, Elvira Chaudoir ended up running a souvenir shop in the south of France and never told anybody what she'd done. So it's quite hard to pin down what is the sort of central motivating character because I don't think there is one. And I don't think you know also, I don't, I don't think these individuals, they certainly didn't start the war, any of them thinking, possibly with the exception of Garbo. But I think even he, I don't think, began the war thinking, what I'd really like to be is a double agent or a triple agent. <laughs> or like Brutus, actually a quintuple agent in the end. I mean, he, he changed sides four times. Yeah. Um, well, when you say that, when you, you call them faithless mm. because of their blindness, they're mm. not unfaithful because almost you're unfaithful to something. Yes. And I think in, in each of their cases, they were faithful in the end, although it was never certain that they would be, uh, with the possible exception of Treasure, who was, who was, which is a story we haven't even gone into. I mean, she, I think, was only... She is, she is the strange sort of Russian-French woman who arrived with her dog in, in Madrid in 1943, explaining that she'd been recruited by the Ab there but would much rather spy for the British, but had to bring her dog with her, insisted on bringing her dog with her. But the poor dog was then kept in quarantine. Um, to Treasure's fury. Um, and Treasure, the only thing Treasure was loyal to, I think, was her dog in the end, uh, which very nearly, um, as those of you who will know who've read the, read the book, very nearly wrecked the entire thing. So, again, I mean, I think with that exception, the others did keep the faith and did have a kind of solidity in the middle of these very, very kind of febrile characteristics that, they, that, that, that they'd have been very hard to predict what they would do in any other way, I think. Yeah, but they're dark shadow is blunt, you know, yeah. the, the sort of dark side. I mean, do you think they also had a, a dark, cold side to them? Or were they just yes, I think they did. I think they were pretty ruthless, actually. I mean, I think, I don't think, ruthless and in some ways insouciant as well. I don't think Popov thought twice about betraying his great friends, these German officers who laid on wonderful parties for him and bought him cars and I don't think it never occurred to him twice to think that this was something that... Oh, there was one moment when he had a little wobble, but otherwise it was just part of the game, I think. I think they were, I think they were very tough in that way. I think they had a kind of a sort of brutality at the centre that was quite interesting as well. Um, yes. Any others I can do? Yes, sir, at the front here. Um, I was just wondering, during the First World War, there's a lot of uh, popular spy fever, you know, people saying that there are thousands of German rifles under Charing Cross and mm. things like that. I mean, did this exist in the Second World War? I mean, Bletchley Park, the officials knew everything, but the people on the ground, were they fearing their postman was a... Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, in some ways, the sort of fifth-column scare of the Second World War was even more extreme than the First World I mean, the First War was powered by... And, in fact, the, the paranoia... is a slightly different subject, but the paranoia in the First World War was entirely justified. I mean, uh, there were lots of German spies operating in Britain. Um, it was a wonderful case of sort of fiction actually leading to fact. It was true. I mean, there, there was a particular... Um, a lot of them arrived as waiters, actually, in the First World War. There was a sort of exchange scheme with waiters. And there's a particular restaurant in German Street where every single waiter was a German spy um, and spent the entire war sort of overhearing what was going on at the tables. But no, the Second World War, no, there was a huge um, fifth-column scare where, um, you know, not only... Uh, I mean, it was, I think it was some... Um, who was it? Said one of the sort of senior figures says you could, said you could spot a German spy from the way they walked, but only from behind. Never had that explained properly, and that, you know, um, and there was no. I mean, there was a huge panic. Yes, I mean, the idea that your that your bank manager not only looked normal but actually probably was a German spy. Theory that I rather approve of, actually. But um, no, and th th there was another theory that that the Germans were training up 
um, uh, sort of fascists in lunatic asylums who were going to release them all at, at one go, and, and they were leaving special messages on lampposts. There's a whole report, actually, in MI5, which I must write about at some point, which is the idea that the, that the, the Germans were leaving behind special lump, sort of gatherings of, of, of waste, of sort of cartons and cigarette boxes and things, and, and, which was, of course, literally a load of rubbish. It was complete nonsense. They weren't doing any such thing. But in a funny way, it did work to, to, to the advantage of MI5 because the, the cooking up of this, this panic meant that while one part of the operation was sort of dealing with completely bogus scares, they could get on with the real stuff, um, sort of, as it were, completely under the radar. But, yeah, no, I mean, the, there was a panic, and it was partly justified. I mean, they, the, the invasion spies were very numerous, but as I say, of very low quality. I mean, they were extraordinarily inept. Um, in some cases, hilariously so. I mean, there was one, one spy who rowed ashore in Banff, having been <laughs> dropped by a seaplane, um, who, who was quite good in some ways, but he had absolutely no grip on the duodecimal system at all. And so he arrived at the local train station, having sort of slogged through the night, and was told that it would be ten and six to get him down to London, uh, and immediately doled out ten pounds and six shillings and was arrested. Um, I mean, <laughs> they, they, were, they, had, um, they hadn't done a lot of homework. But interestingly, I mean, once the Germans believed they had a fully functioning intelligence network in Britain, once they had Garbo in place and, and, and Treasure and Tricycle and all the rest of them, they assumed that it was working so well that they didn't need to send any more. And so from 1943 onwards, they just didn't send any more spies into Britain because they assumed the whole thing was running perfectly, when in fact, of course, it was being run, being run by the British. Um, if that answers your question. Um, Chris, yeah. I, I, I guess follow up the question just now, and... There was always the suspicion with Zigzag that he was kind of hedging his bets to a certain extent. Do you think any of the, the five in the book were, given their lavish lifestyles, they were hoping that whoever won the war, they would win as well? Did you hear that? There was a good question. It's, it's, uh, Chapman, Agent Zigzag, I've always thought was, was hedging his bets. I mean, I think if the Germans had invaded and if the Germans had won the war, Chapman would have become a very senior um, German intelligence officer and would have lived the rest of his life swaggering up and down the Kurfenstamm. I think he'd have been perfectly all right. Um, I don't think any of these five were quite in that, in that area. I think they had thrown their lot in. I think, with the possible exception of Brutus, who was the Polish patriot, who had rather brilliantly kept his lines open with both sides. I mean, he had utterly convinced his German case officer that he was reliable. And I he was, he was slightly different from the others in the sense that his primary loyalty was to Poland. And I think, this is purely speculative, but I think had the war gone the other way and had he seen a way to defend Poland's interests by flipping back to the other side, he might have done it. But he's the only one, I think. I think the others were pretty committed, and I think they knew, which actually underscores the idea that beneath all this fun and the, the playing of the game, they were playing an extremely dangerous game. I mean... Treasure was prepared to go back into Lisbon in the absolute knowledge, the certain knowledge, that if she was rumbled, if they found out, she would be killed. There would be no trial. She would simply be, she would be probably tortured and executed. And so I think one has to bear in mind that although it seems so sort of wonderfully amateur and fun, and they are having fun. I mean, the mere code names gives you an idea of how much fun they were having. Beneath it all, it was a very serious and deadly business. And they were, they were taking enormous risks. Um, so I think, with the, certainly with the other four, I, don't think, I think they had all thrown their lot in with the British. And they would have been found out pretty quickly, too. I mean, I, it wouldn't have taken long, I think, to establish um, that they were pulling it the wrong way. 
Um, yes, absolutely. Yes, sir. Would the use of torture wholly one-sided in your research? I have never come across an example of British intelligence using torture during the war. And, and more than that, I've come... I mean, the man who was in charge of Camp 020, the great the sort of interrogation centre in Britain, uh, which was based on Ham Common, who was, who was a man called Robin Tinai Stevens, who had a sort of terrifying monocle, who looked like a kind of Gestapo torturer. He had an absolute prohibition on the use of torture <coughs> because he argued, and that there is an argument to this, and I think it, it has a certain validity, he said that if you torture people for information... If you inflict enough on them, they will finally tell you whatever it is you want to hear. And so not only do you get, uh, you, you get false information, you end up with, with the wrong stuff. Now, I don't think that always works, because I think torture does work sometimes. Um, but I have never come across an example of systematic... They used stuff that wouldn't have been allowed under the Geneva Convention, sleep deprivation, food deprivation, loud noises, you know, blaring music. But they, uh, did they use third degree? I've never come across a single example of it. Of, of, of systematic use of, of violence to try to extract secrets. They didn't have to, is the other point. I mean, they, as far as the cases that I've dealt with, these were people who were offered, again, it wouldn't be allowed now, but were offered a pretty straightforward choice. I mean, we're not talking about my five here, we're talking about the others that were intercepted, and were simply told, you know, you either work for British intelligence or we try you, and the long result of that is likely to be the hangman's noose. Um, so they were threatening indirectly, but is that a form of torture? I suppose it is a form of mental torture. You wouldn't be allowed to do it now. But as far as I can work out, torture was not used, and indeed was more than that, it was prohibited. Um, they, they stopped people from using it. Why Jebson didn't break under torture, I, I don't know, and I, I would love to know the answer to that. It's one of the sort of... Because he was a frail figure. He was not the sort of person... And he Popov himself said of, of Jebson, who was his best friend... He, he, he was not the sort of person you would... He wasn't a robust figure who, who would be likely to withstand it. And my suspicion, I haven't put this in the book, but I, I think it is probably true. He was a very wealthy man, Jebson, and his, his interrogators were after his money as much as they were after his, his secrets. And I suspect he managed to stay alive by doling out money to them, by telling them where his bank accounts were. And I think he probably managed to, to string enough of that along to, to sort of to stay alive for a bit. Yes, sorry, there's one here at the front. Of them. It's a wonderful, a wonderfully, oh, sorry, it's a wonderfully convoluted book, but how long did it take you to unravel it? I mean, how long was the research? Well, I'm, I'm on, uh, due to my slave driver here, I'm on a kind of two-year two cycle at the moment where I spend about a year researching and then, a, and then a year writing. I mean, I was very fortunate with this one in lots of ways because there have been books written about Operation Fortitude before, the overarching... Deception. The, the, the bit, to be honest, that I'm slightly less interested in, which is the dummy tanks and the radio messages and so on. So, so the background stuff has been covered. Um, and then there is just this extraordinary treasure trove of material. Um, I mean, the Garbo files alone, and I'm not exaggerating, are that high, um, which took an awful lot of wading through. But uh, there is a sort of richness to them, and it's all in one place. It's all in the National Archives. And then the sort of, as it were, the more journalistic side of, 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 of the way I write is, is the incredible good fortune that there are people, I mean, we are still on the edge of living memory here. There are people who remember this from first hand. And there is nothing quite as kind of thrilling as finding somebody who was directly involved in this because they can tell you what it felt like. They can tell you what it smelled like. They can tell you, 
you know, from day to day what it is like. And that, is, in a way, is the gold dust. I mean, it won't last very much longer because, of course, these people are, are not going to be with us forever. But it's, uh, being able to combine those two, in a way, makes the job easier for one because it's, you're, you're talking to living sources, which is always completely wonderful. But it is, it's, a, it's a tricky, compli- it's a complicated story, this one. And it's a, in a way, it... it, it, it it doesn't have the narrative arc of the earlier books, which are either about individuals or, or, or operations in single time. Um, and, and one of the trickier things was to tell these five different stories, which are obviously happening contemporaneous with each other, contemporaneously with each other, in a way that still allows you to tell the narrative. Um, but I love doing it. It's a, it's, it's a jigsaw rather than a, than a kind of piece of tapestry. It's a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing to put together, but I've loved it. It's been great fun. Um, Richard, yes. Well, the tri- I don't know what to do next. I, I'm not sure I will do another kind of how we won the war story, although I'd like to. But I, I think maybe I, I'd quite like to do. I don't know. I better not say this because my publishers are in the room. Um, I haven't settled on a final story yet, but I, I do think this area is so rich, um, and we do seem sort of weirdly fascinated. But I certainly am. Um, I think I, I would be a fool to leave the Second World War entirely. I think it's kind of. Rupert Murdoch. Yes, I know. That was a, in an otherwise in an otherwise generous review. I found that particular sign-off not wholly helpful, actually. And if the levels of skullduggery and complexity in this book seem complex, I think that one would be altogether. In, well, beyond my remit, I suspect. <laughs> but thank you for that. Good. Yes. Well, that seems to me like we're drawing to a close. Well, I have one final question, mm. which is, would you have been a good spy? Are you a good spy? Uh, I was uh, approached by, bless them, um, when, I was, when I was at university. I think I would have been absolutely hopeless um, for the simple reason that I find it very hard to keep a secret. Um, but maybe that's an elaborate I double bluff, and you'll true. never know. I bet that's you'll not never, true. You'll know you, Ben. I would, you'll you know, never know the true. answer. Yeah. 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 No, I think I would have been yeah. completely useless. Yeah. No, I like because Alan Massey made that point in his reviews. Yes, he, he did. So yes, I, said, I, you've been, you've been I'm never up, more flattered than I mean, when they try to suggest that I am. How did he know? Maybe they all know. They all know. I think it's all it's all rude on the thing. But no, I think I would have been hopeless. And but fascinatingly, I think it is also true of people who are involved in the game. Is and perhaps that links into what we began with that. The sort of the fictional element to spying is that actually people do love to tell these stories, and people who have done them love to tell these stories. Yeah. And the five spies that I've written about in here couldn't wait in each case once the war was over to, to spill the beans, and sure enough, they did. Um, thank goodness. Well, th- Ben, thank you very, very much indeed. Um, that was wonderful. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Um, You, you, you do have a fabulously large mind and you are fantastically brilliant. <laughs> so I was just sort of listening to that and thinking that all over again as I often do. Anyway, um, just to say, um, I don't tell you what, what I have to, uh, We're not selling books. That's what you usually said at, at, at uh, bookshop events. We're not selling books. We, we sold them all, probably, I imagine. But we have, um, we're on the next, um, thank you all for coming to our, our, this, uh, this Bloomsbury Institute event. And the next one is on May the 22nd. Uh, when we're hosting a joint event with Grant, uh, with Lawrence Norfolk, Esther Freud and Andrea Stewart to launch the Britain issue of Grant, uh, which I think sounds completely fantastic and I, for one, definitely going to be there. So um, I urge you all to attend. And thank you very much, Ben. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, my dear fellow.